Okay, so today we are going to, at the end of last class, this is the last lecture kind of on the, the metabolism of glucose, right? So we went from a glucose molecule to pyruvate in uh, two classes ago, and then we took that pyruvate and we broke it down into carbon dioxide last class. And through the process of doing those things, we've made a few ATPs and a GTP through substrate level phosphorylation, but mostly what we've been making is, is NADH, right? The electrons that were on glucose that we pulled off of glucose, um, you know, they eventually get on oxygen. But what we've done is inter intermittently, we've, or in, in the interim, we've taken those electrons and we've taken them off glucose and we've put them on, on NADH and FADH2. And so this gets to the rub of, of, of the, the principle of, of aerobic metabolism. You know, why are we making all this NADH and FADH2? Well, this is the payoff phase now. This is where we're getting a lot of ATP from those. This happens again in the mitochondria and a eukaryote. It also happens at the, outer, at the membrane of a bacteria, right? So it's kind of like you can imagine the membrane of a bacteria. Uh, you know, when it becomes internalized into a eukaryotic cell, then it just does keeps doing the same thing that it would have been done been doing when it was a bacteria, free, a free living bacteria. Okay. So this is the general idea of what we're going to be talking about. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these reduced electron donors, uh, FADH2 and NADH, and we're going to pass those electrons down what we call an electron transport chain. And the goal is to put those electrons onto eventually the final electron acceptor, which is oxygen. And when we put those electrons on oxygen, we're going to pull protons on also and make water from that. Right? What happens, though, is as the electrons are moved down this chain, these electron, chain, electron transport chain components have evolved to take protons from the interior of the mitochondria, the matrix, and pump them across the inner mitochondrial membrane into what we call the matrix. Okay, so uh, the mitochondrial membrane, it's a little bit like a gram-negative bacteria, right? It's got an outer membrane and an inner membrane. The outer membrane is pretty porous. Things can kind of freely float in and out. The inner mitochondrial membrane is not. It's, it's, it, it, it doesn't allow things to just diffuse across it. And so when you pump protons across that inner mitochondrial membrane, into the space between the inner and the outer mitochondrial membrane. And that space between the inner and the outer mitochondrial membrane, we call that the matrix. When we pump the protons into the matrix, well, what we're doing is we're establishing a, a, a gradient. Right? We're, we're establishing a, a, a distribution of charge, an uneven distribution of charge. Yeah. The inner membrane space would be the same as the matrix. Oh, did I? Did I get that wrong? I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, inside? Inside. Sorry. My bad. I thought the matrix was between them. Well, the, when I think of the matrix, I think of Keanu Reeves and, and Lawrence Fishburne. But, um, sorry about that. So yeah, sorry, I mixed that up. The inside of the mitochondria is the matrix. And then you've got this inner membrane space between the inner mitochondrial membrane and the outer mitochondrial membrane. 
Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take these electrons and we're going to pass them down this electron transport chain, put them onto oxygen. Why don't we do this all in one go? And this will come clear, a little bit clearer as we go over the course of the lecture. To take an electron off of NADH and put that on oxygen directly is a huge change in free energy. And we're going to show that in a few slides. And if you did that all in one go, and coupled one ATP synthesis to it, you'd be wasting a lot of it. You can make a lot of that energy, that energy drop from NADH to O2 is so big that you should be making lots of ATP from it. And so that's effectively kind of what the electron transport chain is doing. Because there's multiple components, it's breaking that drop in, in standard reduction energy potential, standard reduction potential from NADH to O2. It's breaking it down in steps. So this is kind of the general idea. We've got NADH that's going to be oxidized in NAD. We're going to reduce oxygen into water. And in the course of doing that, we're going to make ATP. Okay? We already talked a little bit about this. All right? We spent glycolysis and citric acid cycle making NADH and FADH from NAD and FAD via these reactions. Something that's got electrons and associated protons on it, something like glucose intermediate or Krebs cycle intermediate, passes those electrons and one of the protons on the NAD plus to make NADH and a free proton. Right? And now you've got this oxidized form of A. Other, otherwise, we can oxidize BH2, take off the two protons and the two electrons, put them onto FAD to make FADH2. And so we've, what we've done is we've basically reduced FAD into FADH2, and we've oxidized BH2 into B. And we just covered in the clicker question that you know, generally enzymes that do these redox reactions are called dehydrogenases. Sometimes that enzyme might do more than one thing, so it gets a bit confusing. But generally, we associate a dehydrogenase as an enzyme that does a redox reaction. Yeah. Just anything. Kind of, a, you can imagine A is like X. Something that's reduced, so it's got an H2, with its associated electrons. Something that's reduced becoming oxidized, so it loses the protons as well as the associated electrons. So AH2 becomes oxidized into A, and NAD plus becomes reduced into NADH. And, and, and there were many examples of various things over the course of the last two lectures. There were various examples of what A could be, right? So what we want to do then is to take these electrons and pass them on eventually to, to oxygen. In a process that generates ATP. And so this whole process, we just call this oxidative phosphorylation. We're going to take NADH that we've, we take, we reduced NAD plus into NADH. We're going to take a half oxygen atom. We're going to split oxygen into two um, elemental oxygens. And then we're going to take, and then we're going to take those two um, protons and the associated electrons. And we're going to reoxidize NADH back into NAD plus to regenerate it. But we're going to put those two protons and those two electrons on oxygen to make water. And the same thing. And the point is to couple that to ATP synthesis. So how does this happen? So these high energy electrons that we have in NADH and FADH2 are going to be passed along this electron transport chain found in the inner mitochondrial inner membrane. And as the electrons are passed down the chain, they lose energy. Okay. And we note that. How do we quantitate that? We talk about this, this term, the standard reduction potential, E naught prime, which is measured in volts. Okay? 
So it's both as kind of a measure of the amount of energy in that electron. What happens is you start with NADH, which has a very negative standard reduction potential, which means it's very energetic. Those electrons are very energetic. Okay? And like I said, we could bounce those electrons directly from NADH to O2, way down here. But like I said, that big drop uh, in standard reduction potential, in free energy associated with standard reduction potential, it's better to do that stepwise such that we can make ATP effectively perform steps that are going to make multiple ATP all the way along instead of blowing everything in one go. And so the way we do that in, uh, in math terms, which we're going to cover a little bit about now, you have to talk about these, this, this idea of standard reduction potentials. Okay? So here's the standard reduction potential of NAD plus plus H plus two electrons into NADH. So the standard reduction potential of that is minus 0.32. Okay? And we always, in general, we write, because it's a, we write it as a standard reduction potential, we, we write it with, as a reduction. Okay? Now, obviously, you could flip it and do an oxidation, and the number you would get would flip. Right? But for convention's sake, we always write it as a reduction. Right? So we've got this NAD plus plus H plus two electrons into NADH, and that's got this negative 0.32 value in this standard reduction, and that's measured in volts. Okay. Now we've got oxygen, right? This is oxygen uh, plus, this is the reduction of oxygen. Oxygen plus two protons and two electrons becoming water. That's got a standard reduction potential of 0.81. Okay. The more, the, the higher the number, meaning the more positive the number, or the less negative the number, the higher the affinity of that molecule has for the electrons, right? So if you're talking about putting, uh, if you're talking about coupling this reaction with this reaction, well, where are the electrons going to go? You look at the standard reduction potentials, minus 0.32, plus 0.81, which one has the more positive number? It's the oxygen. So when you generally put these things together, you're going to get the flow of electrons, the, the, the favored reaction is going to go the electrons from NADH to, to oxygen. Right? You could do it the other way, but it's going to take energy to do that. Right? Oxygen has higher affinity for the electrons than the uh, NADH. Do you follow? And so when you couple those things together, when the electrons are going from NADH to oxygen, that's going to give energy. And when you go the other way, it's going to take energy. One thing that I'm going to um, point out here, so this graph shows only how NADH is moving through here, right? NADH into this complex here called coenzyme Q, which we'll talk about. There's no FADH2 in this, but FADH2 does exist, obviously. Um, it would be somewhere kind of more around here. It also donates its electrons to coenzyme Q, okay? but its standard reduction potential isn't as high as NADH. So let's do a sample math question to kind of understand this a bit better. Right, so how do we calculate the, energetic, the energetics of these reactions? Okay. So the standard reduction potential is related to the standard free energy by this equation. Right, we've got the delta G naught prime, which we've been talking about. And that's equal to minus N, the number of electrons you're passing. For most of these reactions, that would be 2. Okay. NADH getting oxidized gives off two electrons, as does FADH2. And then we've got the Faraday constant. And I'll, 
point out, I guess I'll try to remember to put on the Moodle, um, I don't give you equations on the exams, but I give you the constants. So you don't need to memorize the Faraday constant, or you don't have to memorize the gas constant. The, the exam will have those numbers on the exam, but I don't give you the equation. Okay? You should be able, there's only a couple of equations for this section, so you should be able to remember that. Um, and then there's the delta E naught prime, which is the change, the difference in standard reduction potential between the electron acceptor minus the electron donor in, volt, in volts. Okay? So here's a sample equation for what we just did. Okay? Here's the standard reduction potential for the reduction reaction of NADH, two electrons, and we talked about that on a few slides ago. That was minus 0.32. Here's the standard reduction potential of oxygen going this way into water, that's 0.82. So if we're going to draw the reaction this way, which is the way it goes, I mean, we could, again, we could flip it, right? We could have water giving its electrons to NADH, but now the identity of the acceptor and the donor become flipped, right, when you put in those numbers. But when we draw, this is the way it happens during the electron transport chain. So this is the way we're going to draw it out for our purposes. So we got NADH plus a proton plus a half oxygen and NAD plus plus water, okay? And we substitute all these numbers into the equation we had on the last slide. So it's minus, a minus sign, two electrons, the Faraday constant. So here we've got the electron acceptor, right? The standard reduction potential for the electron receptor is plus 0.82. And the standard reduction potential for the donor is minus 0.32. And the difference between them is 1.14, right? So your minus, these two minuses become a plus. Now you might think that you're going to be clever and think, well, I mean, this reaction here, this NADH going to NAD is the reverse of what's been drawn here, right? It's been drawn as a reduction, but the NADH is getting oxidized. So I should, because I'm flipping this, I should flip this sign into a plus 0.32. But you'd be wrong. Don't do that. Okay? The way the reactions are made is to take into account the change in standard reduction potentials. So even though you do flip that NADH to on the left-hand side and the NAD on the plus side, okay, the equation takes into account that one of them is the electron acceptor and the other one's the electron donor. And you want the change in standard production potential of those two molecules. So you just take these two numbers and you throw them in here. You don't flip this into plus 0.32 because you put the NADH on the other side. Okay? It's the change in standard production potential. So don't make one of them an oxidation. You follow? Okay, so then we do the math. you get a really big number, right? This is minus 220 kilojoules per mole. I mean, if you remember, the amount of energy it took to make an ATP was about 30 kilojoules per mole, right? So if you were to blow all your energy doing this and making one ATP out of it, that would be terrible. You're wasting a lot of energy. There, you can make a lot more ATP than one from a change in free energy of minus 220 kilojoules per mole. So that gets, again, to this idea of the chain. We want to do that down in steps. And so here's the electron transport chain. Um, we're going to talk first about how NADH and FADH2. Oh, um, is this slide? No, it's the next slide. 
Okay, there's an error in one of the, I've noticed going over this morning, there's an error in one of the slides. It's not my error, it's the textbook error, I think. Um, I'll show you the next slide. So, we're going to talk about NADH and FADH2 entering into the mitochondrial electron transport chain. Uh, we're going to go into this a little more detail in the next few slides. So, uh, here's the intermembrane space. Here's the matrix on the inside. Thank you. You're right, of course. Um, so the matrix is the interior of the mitochondria. The intermembrane space is the space between the inner and the outer membrane. They also call it the P side or the N side because the P side is the side that becomes positively charged because of the proton gradient that gets made. And the N side is the negative, what becomes the negative side. Your question? Uh, so NADH enters into the electron transport chain by giving its electrons to this cofactor FMN, flavin mononucleotide. Okay, so this flavin mononucleotide is a cofactor for complex one. And then there's this series of iron sulfur clusters. These are basically electron passers. They basically take electrons and give them to other things, right? So they're basically kind of uh, kind of links in a chain, like almost like a, a wire in a, cur in, a, in a circuit, right? They're basically going to pass electrons along. And so you get, and we're going to cover this a little bit more on, on the next slide. So basically NADH gets oxidized in NAD+, and the electrons eventually get put onto this, what's called this coenzyme Q. Okay? Complex 2 is where FADH2 comes into the chain. Okay? It also puts its electrons on the coenzyme Q. Right? But it's basically, you've got two different complexes that converge on coenzyme Q that are responsible for, except for getting electrons from NADH or FADH2. Right? Complex 1 is NADH and complex 2 is, is FADH2. And if you remember, I mentioned last class, the, one of the places we come across FADH2 is this uh, conversion of succinate to fumarate in Krebs cycle, in, in citric acid cycle. And I told you yesterday that, or last class, Tuesday, that uh, this enzyme that does this is part of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And this is, this is that enzyme. It's complex two. So succinate gets, um, so succinate gets, let me make sure I get this right, um, oxidized into, is that right? No, reduce, oxidized. Oxidized into fumarate. Succinate gets oxidized into fumarate right here on the electron transport chain. Okay? And it's basically putting its electrons onto FADH2, which immediately puts them into the electron transport chain. Okay? Uh, we're, these are other ways that you can get FAD. All right? We're not going to talk about these, so don't worry about that so much. It's part of the figure, but we're not going to get into that. So we're going to talk a little bit about complex one in a little more detail. Right? So uh, again, it has this flavin mononucleotide, which is this cofactor for this process. This is the error. My understanding is that this arrow should be pointing the other way, right? Uh, NADH becomes NAD+, and the electrons come off. So that should be backwards, okay? So anyways, here's complex one. You can also call this NADH dehydrogenase. You've got this flavin mononucleotide here. It's going to accept these two electrons from, NAD, from NADH. NADH is going to get oxidized in NAD+, and it's going to pass these electrons through a series of iron sulfur clusters and eventually put onto this oxidized form of coenzyme Q, which then becomes the reduced form of coenzyme Q. Okay. 
What's really important is as that happens, so this is this transfer from NADH to coenzyme Q, if you remember a few slides ago, there was a significant drop in standard reduction potential between NADH and coenzyme Q, right? So that's effectively a drop in free energy, right? And so what's happening there? What's happening is how are we spending that energy? What we're doing to spend that energy is we're pumping electrons across the membrane, sorry, protons. That energy is used to pump protons across the membrane, okay? So you've got uh, a proton on NADH, which becomes, uh, which comes off. You've got protons that are pumped across, and you've got two protons that are also taken from the matrix and put onto coenzyme Q. And so if you do all the math and add it all up, what you end up with is you've got the proton that's on NADH plus five protons in the matrix plus coenzyme Q which becomes an oxidized NAD+, two protons on coenzyme Q, and four protons, a net four protons that are pumped across the intermembrane, the inner mitochondrial membrane into the intermembrane space for complex one. Where did I get the five protons? There's a proton, there's five here, and there's a sixth here, okay? I mean, this is kind of a different way to try and, and uh, so you've got a, mm, so there's six protons, this is the net, right? There's six protons here, which become six protons here, right? Two on coenzyme Q, two that are pumped across. You follow? Yeah, there's one, make sure I got this right. These two become here. These four just go across. Uh, there's a proton here and a proton here, but this proton was here already, right? So these, these come off as a, um, I mean, I guess one of these in theory could be the ones that are pumped across, I'm not sure. This is the net sum. What's the mechanism that pumps the four? I'm having trouble doing the arithmetic here. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I expect that there's electron carriers that, as as they become, uh, as they become reduced. Typically, when you become reduced, you also tick a proton, right? And then as they pass that along, right, they get rid of that proton. And if you have a way to take it on one side and give it on the other, you're, it's effectively a pump. But this is the net here. This is, the net is four protons pumped across, okay? Uh, just a very brief kind of illustration of kind of what these iron sulfur cluster proteins look like. Basically, they rely on cysteine amino acids that conjugate, right? Cysteine amino acids have a sulfur atom, right, in them. They coordinate an iron atom, okay? And there's several different types. I don't expect you to memorize what these look like. You should understand that you can have a protein that coordinates an iron atom. It can coordinate a single iron atom. It can coordinate multiple iron atoms, like two or very complex structures. The point is that they all have iron, and they always rely on a cysteine to coordinate them. Okay? 
And what happens is these iron atoms, basically, they accept and donate pro electrons by going from the Fe plus 3 to Fe plus 2. Right? As they take an electron, they get reduced into Fe plus 2. And as they give that electron to the next component of the chain, they get oxidized from Fe plus 2 back to Fe plus 3. Don't worry so much about what you would not have to draw this in some way. So the end result of that complex one and complex two is to take um, do I want to do this? Let me do um, complex two first, and then we'll go back to coins on Q. So this is complex two, right? This is the succinate coenzyme Q reductase. This is this transport of electrons from succinate by FADH2, and you also do it to coenzyme Q. Okay. So basically, I mean, the only thing I want to point out here is, is kind of what I've already said. This is that step in the citric acid cycle in which succinate gets oxidized into fumarate. In so doing, we're going to make effectively an FADH2, which will eventually pass those electrons onto coenzyme Q again, similar to what we did at the end of complex one. The difference being that when this happens in complex two, we don't pump any protons across. Okay. So when we talk about later, we're going to talk about how you kind of get more ATP. It's the, it's the pumping of the protons across the membrane that causes the ATP to get synthesis, that promotes the ATP synthesis. So when we talk about why NADH is quote unquote better for making ATP, than FADH2, this is the reason, right? It's because when we put our electrons from NADH onto coenzyme Q, we pump four protons across. But when we put our electrons from FADH2 onto coenzyme Q, same molecule, we didn't pump any protons across. So it's just not as efficient, I guess. It's not as effective. At the end of it, we have this coenzyme Q that's been reduced now, and we'll talk a little bit about that now. Um, another thing I want to point out, which will come up over the next few slides, is that um, you've got these molecules in several of, so we talked about the iron sulfur cluster proteins as these components that pass electrons along. You also have heme molecules, okay, there's a heme basically in here, and you also have molecules that are related to heme molecules called cytochromes. These are also electron transport chain carriers. And we'll, talk, we'll show you a picture of one in a few slides. They also look like heme. Okay. So this is coenzyme Q. Um, again, I, I don't expect you to memorize the structure of it. There's a few things I want you to kind of take away from it. We've got names for the various uh, oxidized or reduced forms of it. Okay. The oxidized form is called Coenzyme Q is also called uh, ubiquinone when it is oxidized, right? So we call that just the Q form. Here's the ubiquinone form. It's just fully oxidized. And the important bit that's going to change as it takes electrons and associated protons, right? You see these two oxygens on this ring? This will take, this ubiquinone, this fully oxidized form, will take an electron and a proton and become this semiquinone radical. Okay, so this is not very happy, but it is an intermediate that forms. So what we've done is we've basically broken this ketone group, effectively, and changed it into hydroxyl. Right? So we call this a semiquinone. And then once we take a second electron and a second proton and put that onto the other ketone group, we make a second alcohol group. 
So by doing that, we change this ubiquinone, some version of a ketone, into ubiquinol, which is some version of an alcohol. Okay? In so doing, we, by changing those ketone groups and alcohol groups, we've stuck an extra two electrons on there with their associated protons. Okay? So we go from the fully oxidized form, ubiquinone, into the fully reduced form, ubiquinol. We also call ubiquinone just this Q form, and this ubiquinol form this QH2 form, kind of similar to FAD and FADH2. Right? FAD is the oxidized form. FADH2 would be the reduced form. And then coenzyme Q is going to be responsible for putting the electrons down into the next part of the electron transport chain, which is complex 3. So here's complex 3. Um, it's made up of a few cytochromes, a few of which you want to kind of be aware of or bear in mind, right? Uh, when we talk about the Q cycle, right? The Q cycle's at first confusing and scary, but it's actually pretty neat, um, like a lot of things in biology. So, uh, so complex three, it's basically going to take uh, the reduced coenzyme Q, okay, and eventually pass them on to cytochrome C1, cytochrome C. Okay? So it's made up of all these. So why is that? If this is cytochrome C, right, or C1, why can't we just take coenzyme Q and put the electrons directly on, on cytochrome C? Well, there's a bit of a problem, right? Um, coenzyme Q has two electrons on it, right, to give. But cytochrome C can only take one, right? And so we need to figure out a way to funnel two electron, a two-electron donor into a one-electron acceptor, right? And so that's where we get into this kind of this, this Q cycle. And for that, we need these kind of uh, cytochrome Bs in here. So this is the Q cycle, right? How do you move two electrons on QH2 to cytochrome C1, which only accepts one of them? What we're going to do is we're going to basically do this twice, okay? What's going to happen is we're going to take in the reduced coenzyme Q with its two electrons. And when it gives them, it gives them both. It gives both electrons. One of them Remember, the idea was to reduce cytochrome C, cytochrome C1. So one of them, it can give on a path that goes directly to cytochrome C, right? But what does it do with the other one, right? Does it just lose it? Does it, you don't want that. What it does is that it puts that second electron onto this cytochrome B, right? This kind of, have these B heme molecules in it. We put that second, that second electron on the cytochrome B, which acts as kind of a holder. So it holds that electron just for a second. Right? It's kind of a way station or a rest stop for that second electron. Okay? So now this cytochrome B has been reduced. Okay? And then what happens is a second coenzyme Q comes in. Right? The second coenzyme Q comes in. It gives its two electrons. Again, one of them gets passed directly to cytochrome C. The second electron, it also gives to the cytochrome B. 
And now that cytochrome B complex has two electrons that it uses to remake a coenzyme Q, a QH2, right? So by going through it twice, you know, you basically took two QH2s, right, and broke them down. One of them you remade, right? And so the net, by doing it twice, the net drop in reduced coenzyme Q is one but you didn't lose any electrons by doing it this way. So this is another way of kind of, of drawing. There's a few different ways it's drawn here, okay? Um, in the first reaction, um, so we've got this QH2. So as it's going through this cytochrome B, you've got uh, basically a Q that is waiting. It's, in like a, it's waiting to get that second electron as part of cytochrome B. So we've got this QH2 that gets oxidized, a Q that gets half reduced as part of cytochrome B. Right? This is the one that's going to come off later. So QH2 and Q, a cytochrome C1 that's oxidized, and now we reduce this QH2. It goes off into just being Q. It lost both, both its electrons. One of them went to cytochrome C. One of them went down through cytochrome B and got put on this, and we've made this basically this semiquinone radical, right, associated with cytochrome B. So it's waiting, okay, and we've re reduced cytochrome C, okay, and that electron on cytochrome C subsequently gets passed on to complex four. Then in the second step, we take a QH2, and that Q that was half reduced associated with cytochrome B, we take an electron and we put it on cytochrome C, again, we take a uh, that semiquinone one, and we put the electron back on, and we remake the QH2, okay? This Q is the one that was generated when we uh, oxidized the second QH2. We take that half-reduced coenzyme Q, and we regenerate it, coming out here, okay? Again, this is another way of drawing it out. Various, thing, various ways of, of doing it. Another thing that's going to happen through this is that we're going to pump another couple protons. Okay? Here we pump another couple protons. Here we need a couple protons to re-reduce the coenzyme Q. So there's two protons that come in here, two protons that come off here, but the net for the second round is nil. Right? There's no net pumping of protons in the second round because we needed two protons to re-reduce this, this coenzyme Q. So the net uh, pumping of protons, okay, do I have that right? Is, so four protons went through, but two protons went in. So the net is two. Why does it say? Oh yeah, two went in here and four came out here. So the net again is two. So we've done a few things. We've pumped them, we've, for each coenzyme Q that goes through, we've pumped another couple of protons, right? We've also managed the trick, the, 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 the difficult task of taking our coenzyme Q, which only gives electrons two at a time, and put them on a one electron acceptor, which is cytochrome C. So now we've got cytochrome C that has been reduced. 
All right, so this is the, the heme molecules in the cytochromes. Okay? Again, I don't want you to memorize structures here. That'd be crazy. You should understand that cytochromes have heme-like molecules in them. Come again? Yeah. So this, this, uh, this cytochrome B is kind of this holder cytochrome, and it is gradually reducing the coenzyme Q that is going to be regenerated effectively. Right? So that's kind of another way of, of doing this. Here, um, we take two coenzyme Qs. Over the course of those two, two electrons get put on a cytochrome C, and that becomes uh, reduced. We're going to get two coenzyme Qs. One of them is going to be regenerated as, one of them is going to be just um, oxidized into coenzyme Q, ubiquinone. The other two are going to basically, one after the other, put their electrons on these cytochrome Bs to regenerate ubiquinol. This is a bit of a mind. Messes with you a bit, but it's pretty neat, though. Cool? All right. All right, so finally we've got complex four. All right, so we've got cytochrome C, which has on the order of four electrons on it, and then it will give its electrons. We've got four cytochrome Cs, each with an electron on it, but basically we're doing this for the, we're, we're doing this in terms of one NADH, right? So we've got four cytochrome Cs with four electrons on it. And complex four is the one that's going to take uh, oxygen and put those electrons onto water, okay? So cytochrome, you've got this cytochrome A, cytochrome A and cytochrome A3. These are the cytochromes in complex four. There are these various cytochromes uh, found in complex four that are going to be paste, passing these electrons on. Uh, basically, what you want to take away from it is uh, the electrons get taken off of cytochrome C, put on oxygen, you, regenerate, you make water. To do that, you need to take four protons from uh, the matrix side and put them on to the water. Importantly, you're also going to pump during the process of doing this, you're going to pump four protons across, okay, similar to what we did for complex one. Okay. So we're going to have four cytochrome Cs that are reduced, Fe plus two, plus an oxygen, plus eight protons, four that get put on water and four that get pumped, into four oxidized cytochrome Cs, that is the Fe3 plus three form, uh, two protons that have been pumped, and two water molecules that have taken those two other so that's the net sum of what's coming out of complex four. Okay. And we're done. And then we've basically taken all our electrons off of NADH and put them on water. But of the course of doing that, for each NADH we did, we pumped four protons across at complex one, two protons across at complex three, four protons across at complex uh, four, so on the order of 10 protons. 
that have been pumped across the membrane. Yeah. Four are pumped, so these go f across, right? These four are on the matrix side still, but they're in water, right? So the, you haven't really um, changed the abundance of protons on this side. Although you're saying that because they're not protons anymore, they... Uh, these four and these four. Four that are pumped, four that are put onto water. And the water can diffuse across the membranes, right? So water is not unique to one side. So the net is this, you do put a, a gradient of protons across. Yeah. What does the cytochrome bound to the iron do? Cysteine? I mean, it, because it's got that sulfur atom in it, it can coordinate the iron atom. It's just capable of holding it in place. Is that what you mean? So, 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 so hang on, are you talking about a cytochrome or an iron sulfur cluster? The iron, in the iron sulfur clusters, you've got iron atoms that are coordinated by cysteine R groups, right? The R, the R group of cysteine's got that sulfur on it. In the cytochromes, it's more like a heme group. It's not sulfurs that are coordinating the iron. It's the nitrogens of this heme ring. Right? So the way that the iron is coordinated is very different, or at least it's different, between an iron sulfur cluster protein and a heme group. Okay? In an iron sulfur cluster protein, the cysteines of the protein coordinate the iron directly. Whereas in a cytochrome, there's a protein that binds the heme group and the heme group coordinates the iron. But the point is just to kind of have uh, a metal that you can relatively easily oxidize and reduce to be able to have these kind of electron carriers. You want to bear in mind also that uh, we have some compounds that are, a lot of the things we consider poisons are, are molecules that inactivate uh, components of the electron transport chain. These are components that have standard reduction potentials and, and well, sorry, let me, let me not. Um, these are compounds that either can have standard reduction potentials that pull electrons off of components and basically kill the electron transport, or they can be proteins that, or co sorry, compounds that bind to components of the electron transport chain and, and destroy them, right, basically. And one of the important things about some of these compounds is that they were used to identify the order of what happens in the, in the chain, right? So, for example, if you add rhodonone to a cell that's performing oxidative phosphorylation, the component that, the reduced component that builds up is NADH, right? Whereas all these components stay oxidized. So you conclude that NADH must be a very early 
member of the electron transport chain. On the other hand, if you add antimycin A, it's cytochrome B. It's the reduced form of cytochrome B that starts accumulating, as well as the reduced form of um, coenzyme Q and the reduced form of NADH, right? These all kind of accumulate, whereas these all stay oxidized, right? So by using these different compounds, you can basically figure out what the order is of the, of the electron transport chain. This is a cyanide. This is a cyanide and carbon monoxide. It's kind of like what we talked about a little bit with um, intermediate metabolism. If you've got A to B to C to D to E, and each of those is catalyzed by a particular enzyme, if you mutate one of those enzymes, the intermediates upstream of that enzyme are going to start building up, and the components downstream of that enzyme are going to be lost. So how do we actually get ATP synthesis out of this? So we've got NADH with this very high free energy of standard reduction potential and then oxygen way down here. And we've got these changes in free energy associated with, instead of doing this all in one go, minus 220, we broke it down in steps, right? Complex 1, minus 80. Complex 3, minus uh, 34 kilojoules per mole. Complex 4, 102 kilojoules per mole. So we did a lot of work in pumping those protons across by doing this in stages, right? This is kind of what I alluded to already, this big drop in free energy from NADH to O2, minus 220. To make one ATP, you only need 31, right? So in theory, we could make almost, what, eight or nine of these ATPs for this drop in energy. The question is, how many do we actually make, right? So this is, I think, one of the coolest things that's been discovered in biology, this idea of, of chemiosmotic coupling mechanism of ATP synthesis. So we've got um, this, these four electrons that were passed uh, across here. These, um, oh man, I guess this is per half molecule of O2, but before it was per, per full molecule of O2. These two protons that come across here, uh, Two protons that go on here, but then come off. Wow, this is complex. Um, I'm not sure that the math is exactly the way I drew it before, but um, let me uh, sit down with a piece of paper and figure this out, and we'll get back to you on this, because they're not drawing it the same way that I've seen it in other textbooks. The point is that we're pumping protons across the membrane here, okay, and we're, we're creating a basically an electrical gradient, a current, basically some sort of a, a positively charged face on the inner membrane space side, and since we're pumping protons across, a relatively negatively charged matrix side, okay? And so the question is, the protons are going to want to come across. They're going to want to go back across. There's going to be uh, basically a uh, diffusion pressure, as well as an electrical pressure, to relieve this uh, charged, this overly charged state on one side, as well as basically a diffusion component, the protons are going to want to come back across the membrane. And the question is, can we attach some sort of um, work to 
to that process. And to do that, we use this, this motor, basically, called uh, ATP synthase. ATP synthase, you can imagine that ATP synthase is working a little bit like a water wheel, right? As the protons flow down the gradient, right, this chemiosmotic gradient, as the protons flow, they're going to turn ATP synthase the same way as water flows over a water wheel, it turns the wheel. And the question is, can we couple that to ATP synthesis? So this is ATP synthase, the crystal structure of this and the associated understanding of how ATP synthesis works. This was good enough for a Nobel Prize back in, I think, the 90s. So basically what we have here is um, protons on the positive side coming in, and the only way that they can get back out is to go around this kind of uh, what looks like even a wheel in the membrane and then come out the other side. And so as they go in and come out the other side to relieve that gradient, this cyan-covered thing, this gamma subunit here, physically turns. It's actually turning this around like, like a water wheel. What that does, and so this is basically another view of it, so we've got the proton binding sites that are going to, the only way that the protons can get from one side to the other is to go in here and turn this around and come out the other side. And the, the charge change that's needed, the, the charge, the chemiosmotic uh, need to be able to do that, to relieve that proton gradient, is what powers this. Okay? And here's that gamma stock here. As this turns, it turns that gamma stock also, right? And what that does, on this side, you've got these alpha and these beta subunits that are part of this complex. And they have a particular conformation that's related to where they are in three-dimensional space with respect to the gamma subunit, okay? So this alpha subunit, this beta subunit, they're identical in, in sequence and in structure of the proteins for those subunits, they're identical to all these other ones. There's three alpha subunits and three beta subunits, right? But they're different, they have different conformations based on where they are with respect to the orientation of the gamma subunit, right? So this is kind of a top-down view here. This is the gamma subunit in the middle. As the gamma subunit turns, the conformation of these subunits, the beta subunits primarily, the conformation of the beta subunits changes, right? So you can imagine that if uh, there's a particular face of the, beta sub of the gamma subunit pointing this way, you're going to have the respective beta subunit, this one, occupying this empty conformation, whereas this part of the gamma subunit is pointing this way. And as this turns, these beta subunits change in their conformation with respect to one another. So this is kind of a cartoon version of that, okay? So as the protons move the, through the pore and they rotate the gamma subunit, these, so we've got this, it's the beta subunit that is the one that's basically doing the ATP synthesis, all right? There's basically three conformations for the beta subunit, all right? There's the beta subunit that is empty. The empty beta subunit is the one that just released an ATP. There's the beta subunit that has uh, ADP and phosphate, and there's the beta subunit that has the ATP bound. Okay? So basically, we've got, and all the other, so, so 
let's kind of, um, we'll go from, so this, so we'll go, where, where should we start? We'll start here. Okay. So you've got a beta subunit that's got an ADP and a phosphate in it. Okay. What happens is, as the protons move and the gamma subunit turns, the beta subunit here changes conformation, okay, and it smushes together that phosphate and the ADP, and it becomes an ATP. Right? That ATP right, can now, uh, sorry, I'm going the wrong way, my bad. Sorry, the arrows are pointing this way. This ADP and this phosphate, as the, beta, as the gamma subunit turns, it mushes together the ADP and the phosphate, and it makes an ATP on it. Okay. The gamma subunit then turns, and when it turns, it opens up this subunit to let the ATP come out. Right. And now it's free to bind another ADP and another phosphate. Right. And so when the gamma subunit turns again, it clamps down on that ADP and gamma phosphate. And so basically, this subunit can cycle between these three states based on where the gamma subunit is. And the other beta subunits are basically in other phases of, so when this one is getting ready to mush together the ADP and the phosphate into ATP, this one has just let go of an ATP it just made. Do you follow? So they're all in kind of mirror states of one another. And the cycling between the states is powered by these protons coming back across the gradient. So every time, the way it's been drawn, every time three protons come across, you get one turn, or one third, one third turn of the, of the gamma subunit, which lets, in each of these states, an ATP is coming off. Okay. Yeah. Right, so here, in this st state here, it just mushed them, it, it took the ADP and the phosphate and it, it, the, the, the conformation of the subunit changed and it took energy to do this because ADP and phosphate don't really want to go together, right? But the energy of the turning forced them together and now so much that AD, it, it put the phosphate on ADP and now you've got ATP. But in that state, it, 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 it doesn't let go of the ATP because it, it just mushed it together. It needs to change conformation again to now let go, right? And when it lets go, the ATP comes off. So going from here, when it just got mushed together to make ATP, to here, the beta subunit basically opens and the ATP it just made comes off. Yeah? I don't think so. I don't think there's much of that happening. Yeah. I mean, so the, con the, the amounts of ATP, A, the amounts of A, N, A something, ADP, ATP, the sum of those is going to be relatively constant in the cell. The question is, is it in the ATP form or the ADP form, right? If ATP levels are high, then in the things we've been talking about in the last few classes, there's going to be changes in the regulation of subunits, of enzymes leading to this that's going to say, why are you making ATP? We have got a lot, if, a, if the balance is, you got 80% ATP and 20% ADP, then there are going to be changes to the enzymes leading up to this that are going to say, don't use glucose to make ATP, make fats with it or make something else with it, right? 
But if you've been burning because you've been working out, then your ADP levels will be very high. And then this is going to fire up. Right after, so yeah, so going from uh, here, yeah, so my understanding is that yes, going from here to here, uh, having let go of an ADP here, it changes conformation to be more receptive to taking an ADP in a phosphate. Yeah. So someone had this great idea. They have, so this was proposed, right? And people said, yeah, it sounds fun, but there's no way you could actually prove that that's the way it works. Well, they, they thought, well, if this gamma subunit is actually physically turning, can we actually see that? And so what they did, this was kind of like a, whenever I see this experiment, I always think of that like carnival music. Do, 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 do. It's like fun, fun things we can do with, with biology. They engineered ATP synthase, okay, so that uh, on the subunit that turns, they stuck this big long actin filament. Okay, so they cloned it such that you had this big long piece of actin attached to it. And then on the end of the actin or, or along the actin, they made it like basically visible under the microscope. All right, they made it very big or they made it glow, they put a fluorescent dye on it. You know, it may be very hard to see it turning if you're just looking at it top down. But if you can actually stick something very, very large on it and it turns, then maybe now you'd be able to see that, right? And that's exactly what they did. They like, so these, this is basically, all this stuff down here, this thing here is a, is a slide that, they're, that they have under a microscope. And they actually attached... They actually attached ATP synthase onto this with this big long actin filament on it. And what they, uh, my understanding is that uh, my understanding of how this experiment was done is not what's shown here. Um, you know, this was done in isolation, right? Without an electron transport chain and a mitochondria around it. So there's no proton motive force making this go, right? But you can imagine that this is an enzyme that can go either way. And so what they did was they added a very high concentration of ATP, and it, became, it turned from an ATP synthesis enzyme into an ATP hydrolysis enzyme. It went backwards, right? ATP hydrolysis is favored, right? ATP hydrolysis is easy. It's, not, it's exergonic, right? So I think this is backwards. It should be showing this ATP hydrolyzed in ADP and phosphate. I'll look it up and let you know. But that's my understanding of how they did this. And then they got, they got this. They got... This is what they saw. I actually see him spinning around. And then the other thing they did, this is awesome, I love this. This is a, oh, where'd my chrome go? Oh, here it is. Yeah. 
So this is the group that did it. Uh, one of the guys, I think the gamma in the middle is the guy who is the first author on the manuscript. These are these guys from Japan. And they, um, there's actually music. Hang on. So, you know, this is gamma that's turning around, okay? And the point of these guys around him, these, these are beta subunits, and, and, and they're assuming different positions with respect to which way gamma is facing, right? So they're changing conformation depending on whether gamma is pointing at them or not. Do you follow? Oh yeah, they have like the credits too. It's awesome. One of these is the is the is the primary author of the of the manuscript that I just showed you. The moment spinning around. It's pretty cool. Any questions on that? Yeah. That's my understanding. You, you, can, you can use the proton motive force in a mitochondria to make ATP, or you can extract the enzyme where the, now, now there's no proton motive force anymore. There's no membrane. And you add ATP to it, and it runs backwards, and it hydrolyzes the ATP. I'm not aware that that is a physiologically relevant function. There are lots of ways you can burn ATP if you've got too much. I wouldn't think it would happen this way. So there's a couple of things we need to think about uh, before we um, finish with this. Uh, if you remember, glycolysis happens in the cytoplasm, but Krebs cycle and oxidative phosphorylation happen in the mitochondria, right? Krebs cycle, the NADH that we make during citric acid cycle, that, we got no problem with that because Krebs cycle happens in the mitochondria and oxidative phosphorylation happens in the mitochondria. So we have no problem uh, taking those NADHs and getting them back into NAD plus for the ones that you make during Krebs cycle. But if you remember, there was one stage in glycolysis where we made an NADH, right? We made an NADH during glycolysis, and glycolysis happens in the cytoplasm. So if we're going to use that NADH in oxidative phosphorylation, we need a way to get to that NADH from the cytoplasm into the mitochondria. The problem is NADH does not cross the mitochondrial membrane. Okay? So there's basically what we call this malate aspartate shuttle, which the purpose of which, the net purpose, is to take an NADH on the cytoplasmic side and move it into the mitochondria. Okay? So what happens is you've got NADH that you made during glycolysis on the cytoplasmic side. Okay? And using that NADH, we reduce oxaloacetate into malate. If you remember, that's the backwards reaction of what we did in Krebs cycle, in citric acid cycle. We oxidized malate into oxaloacetate. Here we're taking oxaloacetate and we're reducing it into malate. Malate does have a, a specific pump that pumps it across the mitochondrial membrane. So once you make malate, 
it'll be pumped across the mitochondrial membrane. Okay, so now you've, you add malate on one side, you move malate to the other side, and then you re-oxidize uh, malate back into oxaloacetate. And when you do that, you reduce an NAD plus in the mitochondria to an NADH. Okay? Well, that's great, except we're down an oxaloacetate in the cytoplasm. Right? We've, got oxaloacetate. We've moved an oxaloacetate from the cytoplasm to the mitochondria, effectively. Okay? So how do we do that? How do we, how do we get that oxaloacetate back? We do this aspartate aminotransferase. Oxaloacetate looks a lot like glutamic acid. Okay? So what we can do is take uh, glutamic acid, right? and we do this aspartate aminotransferase. Glutamic acid will take its, um, sorry, we take a carbon from glutamic acid, and we transfer it onto oxaloacetate. Okay? Do I have that right? So oxaloacetate is a four-carbon compound. Glutamate has this R group where it has these um, two carbons on here. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to convert oxaloacetate into the five-carbon alpha-ketoglutarate. Okay? Alpha-ketoglutarate is going to be transported back across the membrane. And then we're going to do the reverse. And when we take glutamate, we convert it into aspartic acid, which can also be transported across. So basically, we do this these two reactions, malate to oxaloacetate and NAD plus to NADH, to move the NADH, to move the NADH across the membrane, and then to regenerate our things, we take oxaloacetate and glutamate and make alpha-ketoglutarate, the five-carbonic alpha-ketoglutarate, and aspartic acid. The alpha-ketoglutarate and the aspartic acid get sent across, and then we swap them back into glutamate and oxaloacetate. Okay. So by moving malate and speculate aspartic acid across in, in reverse orientation across the two, across the mitochondrial membrane, in essence what you do is you take an NADH and you move it from the cytoplasm to the, to the mitochondria. Now, With specific, specifically to how this happens, right? What happens is that it's the amino group of glutamate that comes off and gets put on oxaloacetate to make uh, aspartate. And when glutamate loses its amino group, okay, it becomes alpha-ketoglutarate. Okay, so what's happening is the movement is happening with this amino group. Okay, this amino group is coming off of glutamic acid, and going on to oxaloacetate to make aspartic acid. Right? And the remaining 5-carbon skeleton of glutamate, without the amino group on it, becomes alpha-ketoglutarate. So what's happening is, between these molecules, we're moving an amino group around. And that's something that kind of comes up a little bit when we're talking about making different things from different pathways. Basically, oxaloacetate is aspartic acid without the amino group, and glutamate is alpha-ketoglutaric acid, or alpha-ketoglutarate without its amino group. Yeah, I saw you first. The amino group. If I said carbon before, I said it, I said it wrong. Okay, it's the amino group that's getting moved. I want to make sure I got that right. The amino group from glutamic acid, 
is taken off and put on oxaloacetate. When you do that, you change oxaloacetate into aspartic acid. Okay? The remaining 5-carbon skeleton of glutamic acid in the absence of its amino group is alpha-ketoglutarate. Glutamic acid is a 5-carbon compound. Alpha-ketoglutarate is a 5-carbon compound. Alpha-ketoglutarate with the amino group becomes glutamic acid. Now, this is one way you can move NADH across the membrane. We're not going to cover the other one in detail. Right? This is kind of our balance sheet for how many ATP we're going to make out of oxidative phosphorylation. Okay. We make two NADHs in the cytoplasm in glycolysis. How many ATP you make out of that, out of those two NADHs, depends on which way you got the NADHs into the mitochondria. We just covered one of them. Okay. The uh, one we covered, the malate aspartate shuttle, does not require any ATP to do it. Okay. So because we didn't burn any ATP doing it this way, the amount of ATP we get out of those two NADHs is five. Okay? But if we use the other shuttle system, which we're not going to cover, that requires ATP to do it, then you're only going to get, because it requires ATP to do it, you're only going to get three if you move the NADH across the membrane that way. That's, I only want to bring that up because that's the reason why there's two numbers here. Whether you get five ATP out of that, those two NADHs, or whether you get three ATP out of those two NADHs that are in the cytoplasm depends on which shuttle you use. Okay. So in glycolysis, we made two NADHs and two ATPs. During uh, pyruvate oxidation, we made two NADHs. That was pyruvate dehydrogenase, right? And then going acetyl-CoA through citric acid cycle, we made another uh, six NADHs per glucose, okay? And two FADHs as well as two ATP or two GTPs during that substrate-level phosphorylation in, in, uh, in Krebs cycle, in citric acid cycle. So how do we convert these into ATP? Well, it depends on your what, how much ATP is an NADH worth. The number we use, it's, you know, depending on which, how many protons get put across and how many protons it takes to turn ATP synthase, it works out to about... Uh, 2.5 ATPs per NADH and 1.5 ATPs for each FADH. Okay. So when we do the math for how many FADHs were made and how many NADHs were made and all the ATP that were made during glycolysis and citric acid cycle, what we end up getting is 30 or 32 ATPs per glucose, okay. which is a lot better than just the two we made when we were doing glycolysis and fermentation. So you get on the order of 31 ATP per molecule of glucose, right? If we oxidize glucose chemically in, a, in, a, um, in the lab, we get on the order of minus 280, minus 2,800 kilojoules per mole. Uh, if we take this 32 times this uh, delta G naught prime for ATP hydrolysis and multiply it up, we end up getting about 32% about of the energy that glucose has we managed to make ATP out of, which doesn't sound good, but it's actually quite good. You know, chemically speaking, in life, 
it's hard to directly translate um, potential energy into work uh, without just losing it as heat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. The 31 ATP we're making is net. So, so when we did glycolysis, we put uh, four in, we, we put two in and got four back. So the net for glycolysis was two, and they're putting that two number here. So the net ATP we're getting is, is 31, kind of the average of this 30 and 32. Okay, so next class, I'm going to, uh, probably go over that slide again with respect to 